If you please turn with me, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. Our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Today's title is David's Throne Established in Christ, so you can keep that in your mind as we read 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 16. Let's go ahead and read this together. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. So this Advent... If you notice the past few weeks, we have been tracing uh, the redemptive theme of Scripture through covenants. We have gone through uh, the covenant with Adam, and then we also went through uh, Genesis through Abraham, and today we get to the promise of Christ our King in what we call the Davidic covenant. God's covenant with Abraham promised the land, and under David, the promised land shown to Abraham was secured and governed by righteous kings. At Mount Sinai, Israel received the law. And in David's kingship, God provides a gracious law enforcer to sit on Israel's throne. Having previously ruled Israel from his mobile sanctuary, God establishes now a permanent location for his throne. Richard Phillips says this, God himself associates his kingship with the throne of David. And from this time forward, God's covenant purpose for salvation centers on the coming of his kingdom to his people. 
Christ came to be the new covenant and to be the fulfiller of these promises. So the covenant with David is the next clear advance in establishing the clear identity that's being unfolded of who the Messiah is, the promised one, the second and better Adam, the second and better uh, David or Solomon, if you will. So this covenant with David is closely associated, and we're going to demonstrate that today, it's closely associated with the Abrahamic covenant. When Jacob declared his last will and testament to his 12 sons as a prophet, he issues a significant promise concerning Judah. In Genesis 49.10, it says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Here we see that Judah functions as the tribe of kings, and we're going to see why that's important here, functions as the tribe of kings until the coming of King Jesus, the one to whom it really and truly belonged. He fulfilled that. We see here that when the rightful king should come, then all the people will submit obediently to him. What we're doing is what uh, some people call telescopic theology. We're looking through a telescope down through the redemptive time, and we're seeing it unfolding and unpacking, and it kind of snowballs towards the true fulfillment, which is Christ. All of the Old Testament looks forward to the coming, to these promises, uh, all these prophecies of that one who fulfills perfectly all those seats and all those roles. And what do we do as, uh, as those who are grafted in as Gentiles? And now today as we look back on what Christ has done. So this is a bit telescopic, if you will. And so we're going to demonstrate that. We expect then for Genesis 49... To, to come right into 2 Samuel 7. But how many years passes between Genesis 49.10 and 2 Samuel chapter 7? If you're not sure, I did the math. And it was almost a thousand years. A millennium. That's a long time, if you weren't aware. It's a long time. But for almost a thousand years, there was seemingly no evidence or clear unfolding of that promise. There was a long period of waiting. And just like Pastor Jeff pointed out last week, we're in the season of Advent. This is a time of immense waiting. How many of you like waiting? No, no hands up. We, we are not patient people. And can you just imagine as the nation of Israel... Genesis 49.10, we've got this king, this king is coming, this king is coming. And they, they had the understanding that it was a redeemer. But there was this long period of waiting for, for that promise to come. In 2 Samuel 7, we see that clearly here marked out. But as we learned last week, God is always faithful to his promises. It's going to be in his time. God is the author of time. He stands outside of time. He put us inside of time, so we function by watches. And it's frustrating, but it's for our good. Three. Learn to wait. The long delay seemed to jeopardize Israel's history. Seemed to jeopardize that. And the promise of a Messiah, uh, some may have been wondering, when is it going to come? When is he going to be here? So here today we see that God renewed here. 
He renewed and he reconfirms that promise in a covenant with King David. 2 Samuel is the historical text for this inception. Psalm 89, God gives us a biblical commentary on the meaning of this passage, the spiritual meaning. And so we will use parts of Psalm 89 in our time together today to shed more light on really the spiritual significance of this passage, of this Davidic covenant. So let's pray together and ask for God's blessing as we unpack this passage. Father, we thank you for your covenant that you keep and that you made with the nation of Israel through Abraham, promising a people. We are the beneficiaries of that today as we are grafted in as the one true people of God. We thank you also for this Davidic covenant that you, through Christ, who fulfilled it, stands as our king and has made us sons and daughters, has made us royalty. May we understand the significance of this. Would it move us and change us as a people at Pine Grove to be and to operate and to function seeing one another as royal children? Would that affect our walk and our interactions and in our love for Christ and for each other? In Jesus' name, amen. So number one, we need to see that God operates through lines, through lineage. Um, that's probably not a favorite part of study for you, going through numbers, going through uh, you know, chronicles, going through uh, Matthew you know, or Luke chapter 2 maybe. Maybe you don't really like studying chronology and lineage in the Bible, but that is a big deal. We need to talk about why that is. So first of all, we're going to look at the seed today, the line of kings, the house of David, and why that's significant. This is super important to understand that God works through lineage. Christ came through Israel for the world, and that's important. It's important to understanding election as well. Why would that be? Why is it important that God chose Israel? Because when you look at who Israel actually is, did God choose them because they were a great nation? Did he choose them because they were so incredibly powerful and good-looking and rich? No, he chose a... Here's what he calls them in the Bible, you stiff-necked people. I mean, stubborn. When my son was really little, I'm going to use him as an illustration, he, he was stubborn, he still is, and it's not a bad thing. Um... I would, I would get on him when he was one and two, and he would, he would look at me and do this. He, you know, kind of stamp his foot, and I had a hard time not laughing. But um, he, he had that neck would just stiffen. God calls the nation of Israel a stiff-necked people. They were stubborn. They were hard. But he chose them because God is good. He chose them to demonstrate his power, his glory, his grace, his mercy. And so, as God chooses to bring people into his family, does he choose you because of your greatness and your goodness and, wow, look at how great you are? No. The gospel humbles us. Forth, a Savior used Israel to, to bring forth a Savior, a Savior of power, a Savior of glory, a Savior of peace, the better one, the best one for us. But he chose Israel for the world, and Christ came through them. 
But specifically, it's important that he came through the line of David, the house of Judah, to establish that he is not only prophet, he is not only the greatest priest, but he's also the greatest king. They were the tribe of kings. He was the king of the Jews. He is the king over all. He is to rule and to reign. And notice with me in Luke 2, 4 through 5. Luke 2, 4 through 5 says this, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, a place of, of, of no renown, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David. He came to be king, to take that rightful throne. And notice it's on record. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So this is on record that he belonged to this family, to this line, to be king. As we read today, God rejected David's proposal to build the house of the Lord. He was a man of war. He was a man of blood. Uh, he was a warrior. And God was ushering in a time of peace. But who was to usher that in? Solomon. So there is some temporal focus here too for David himself and for his son. But again, this is telescopic. This is pointing forward to Christ. Solomon was, was if you read some commentaries, they'll call it, they're a type of Christ. Not meaning they're Jesus. But they're a type of Christ. Solomon was kind of a foreshadowing of through him would come a better and the best and the perfect Solomon. Through David, right, Christ was, uh, David was a type of Christ. Jesus was a warrior. He, in his second advent, will come back as what? The lion. This advent, he's the lamb. Peace. Solomon. You're starting to see the pictures that, that the Bible gives us of Christ. So God is using these situations here and now to forecast who is to come and who he is to be. And so God said, back to the house here, he would build a house for David. God would build the house. And this is super significant to understand too, that God is the one who built this house, through which the dynasty would come for the ideal king, the Messiah. So God references his seed in verse 12. Notice it says this, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So God promises to set up David's seed. And this is directly linked to all the preceding covenant promises as well. As you read the Bible, I hope you're noticing the Abrahamic covenant is inextricably linked to all the other covenants. The Mosaic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. And it's culminating in Christ, the new covenant that we celebrate at the Lord's table, that we read of on every page of Scripture. It's all about Christ. So I hope you don't disconnect these. There are some who will disconnect, you know, uh, the Noah's flood, and they'll disconnect it from Abraham, they disconnect it from David, and they compartmentalize the Bible. It's one flowing story of Jesus Christ. So God promises to set up David's seed. 
It is linked to all the other promises. These covenant promises are not isolated. They are systematically connected, and it's a beautiful story. First of all, we need to see that Christ Jesus is the fulfiller of all promise made by God to his people. We see that David's seed would bring an everlasting throne. Was that talking about Solomon? Obviously not. This is spiritual. Okay? It's talking about Jesus. This text is not mainly concerned with just Solomon. Rather, again, it's telescopic. It's, it's Solomon serving as a type of Christ. Solomon was earthly and died. This text points us past Solomon to the one who came through him who was all wise and peace. The spiritual subject of this passage would enjoy a unique relationship with God. God would be his father, and he would be his son. Notice also that this king occupies the highest throne, Psalm 89, 27. That is, again, the commentary on this passage. It says this, this king is the firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Again, is that Solomon? Not at all. This, this is spiritual significance that we see here. Where the previous earthly kings through which Christ came failed and sinned, which this passage speaks to, right? David failed and sinned. Solomon failed and sinned. The final one to come did not fail. He was perfect. He was the spotless lamb. This covenant promise, therefore, is unconditional. Isn't that good? How many of you like conditions? We like them when they're placed on other people. You know, they messed up their conditions. We like it when that happens. We, we don't like conditions placed on us. God knows that we are weak, that we fail, obviously. That's why he sent his son. This covenant promise is unconditional. It's regardless of the sin of David, regardless of the sin of Solomon, and to the others to follow, it points to the necessity of the perfect king to come who is enthroned permanently for all eternity. The prophet Isaiah also understood the point of the Davidic covenant. In Isaiah's great gospel invitation, he speaks of the everlasting covenant, and he he calls it this, the sure mercies of David. And I love that phrase. It's the sure mercies of David. So let's talk about the term mercy here. This really reflects who Christ is. It reflects how he rules on his throne. He rules with mercy. The term mercy gets thrown around a lot today. I don't think we quite understand and stop to contemplate and think about mercy Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. That's the righteousness of Christ. We don't deserve heaven, and he gives it to us. We don't deserve a perfect relationship with God through Christ, yet he gives it to us. We didn't earn it. We're not owed it. But mercy is what? God not giving us what we do deserve. What do we actually deserve? This is very humbling, and I, I think we need to stop and think about this, especially at Christmas. Why Christ came. He came, being perfect, to bear my sin so that I don't have to bear it. And we don't have hell anymore. That is the payment for sin. And yet he took that in our place. hope you understand that. He took that. 
Mercy is God withholding judgment and punishment over me. And we see that here in this covenant. This idea of the sure mercies of David is embedded in this understanding of the Davidic covenant here. And I don't think we often connect covenant and promise to mercy and grace into the gospel, but you cannot disconnect them. It is a covenant term that brings to the forefront the unfailing loyalties of Jesus Christ. Why is it that we don't have hell? Who was perfect? The one who took my sin. He was loyal. He was faithful. He never broke that covenant in providing redemption. He followed through. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So often when we sin, we spend much time on what we did and fail to look up and remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. How the Father loves through his Son to his people. Isaiah defines sure mercies as a person. It's Jesus. It's not some abstract idea. It's a relational, real person that forgives us. It's flesh and blood. Mercy is flesh and blood. He is Christ, the King. He says about those sure mercies, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that you may live. He came to bring life and that you have it abundantly. Come that you may live And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. This suffering servant in Isaiah is also the sure mercies of David, Jesus Christ. All the talk about an everlasting kingdom points to our need for the everlasting king, Christ Jesus, the perfect king, the one who is ruling and reigning today. So let's just take some time for application here. Just pause here for a second. Some of you, again, may be fretting and worrying about all of this political trauma in the midst of the holiday seasons, all the weirdness that's going on with Russia, all this odd stuff that's happening in the world today. Where is your everlasting king right now? He's ascended and seated at the right hand of God who prays for you, who cares for you as your prophet, your priest, but also your king. God is not up in heaven pacing those golden streets, biting his nails, wringing his hands worried. He's not. He's your father. He made an everlasting covenant with with David, not a murderer, a fornicator, because God is good. We're not. And you think you're beyond the mercies of God? Or you're outside of his care? This applies to you today, as you are children of David. The second significance for today's focus is also on the divine oath that God made. David was a doer, wasn't he? He was a mover, he was a shaker, he was a warrior, he was an incredible politician, he was a strong man, wasn't he? He was a man's man. God came to David and said, you're a mover, you're a shaker, but you're going to sit this one out. How many of you like that? Some of you men here are 
active men, when you see a problem, you want it fixed yesterday. If it's not fixed yesterday, it's past. I mean, we want to fix stuff, fix stuff, fix stuff today. And God comes to David and says, you're not, you've, you've been a man of war, you're a man of action, but you're going to sit this one out. And God comes and makes an oath with him. God makes promises. God keeps them. God fulfills them. God designs them, sets them in motion, completes all that he sets out to do. And did God build the temple? He did. Did it through who, though? Using his son, Solomon, to do. And what we learn is that God uses feeble men, messed up men, sinful men to do his perfect will. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Tumbling, too uses weak, feeble men to do his will, and God comes through, and he holds to his promises. Psalm 89.3 says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Psalm 89.34 and 35, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. He always keeps it. Bank on it. Once for all, I have sworn my holiness, I will not lie to David. He swore an oath to David that he would fulfill his promise, and he did. This promise was often the very center and theme of David's praises as you read the Psalms. Okay, This is the very theme and the center of our worship today as well. But we also need to look at the, the depth of the promised one's rule. Although David was a national king, He understood that through his line would come one who not only ruled spiritually from the line of Judah, but would rule over all the world. David was humble in this realization. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 18, we didn't read that this morning, but it says this. Notice this response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? You ever said that? Wow, God's showing favor upon me. Why? Good question. And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David was just totally moved by the mercy and the grace of God. David sees his promised heir as a source of blessing for the entire world. And what did God promise Abraham? Children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Children of faith. These are spiritual promises. David's promise is our promise. This is the very gospel. This is the very good news. That God redeems a people from all tribe, tongue, and nation for himself. In our time, we grow, as I mentioned earlier, weary and tired of the sinful sources of chaos in this world. Where people buck the rulership of Christ, his moral code, his law, his purposes where they mock the church, where they mock Christ, they mock believers. It's tiring, isn't it? It's wearisome. But in God's grace, we learn to pray for and give thanks for our rulers where we can. We look upward to Christ, we trust God, and we know that he sets up rulers and kings, can bring them down as he wills. He can move in their hearts however he sees fit. And the Bible says the heart of a king is in his hand and he turns any way that he sees fit. So we don't need to fret. God is so good to us to make us long for a better king. Why do you think he uses wicked men 
It makes us long for that perfect peace where there is no more sin, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering. Purpose. He's preparing us. He's making us thirsty for Christ. He makes us hungry for Christ. He makes us long to shut off this world and hope for the next. We live in that tension of an already not yet. Christ came and he ascended and he will one day put all things to right. He will set everything in perfect motion. He will have everything completed one day. Whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, post-wrath, pre-wrath, wherever you're at in your eschatology doesn't matter. We all believe Christ is king. We believe he will set all things right. So let's focus on that together as a people. But until that day, we're in the school and we're learning to long for a higher king, for a better king, to exercise our faith, to be stretched, and to, here's the word that we all love, to wait. We're waiting. We're, we're sitting under the, the throne of God now. We bowed the knee in this life. If you're a believer today, that's what you've done, is you've bowed the knee in this life. And if you're not a believer and you have not bowed your knee to the king, in the book of Revelation, which is not Revelations, it's the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Christ, it's the revelation of Jesus. What does it say there? If you don't bow the knee in this life, you will bow it in the next. He's king. He's giving you an opportunity today to say, I can't do it. I can't. I try to do right. I fail. I fail. I fail. Welcome to the club. That's why you need Jesus. That's why believers bow the knee, because they can't do it. They need Christ. They need a king. We have to submit to him. Let him rule in under his scepter. Be Long for his presence. Live under his scepter. Be comforted by the discipline that your father brings you. If you're weary and worn and you're going through trials and you're just tired today, I'm right there with you. Let Christ the king, who is also a king of peace, rule in your heart. Let him have that. Give it to him. He is a king of peace. It's from the line of Solomon. Give thanks that we have a king, as we've mentioned, who is merciful, who's gracious. Remember his sure mercies. Be thankful that he does not hold our sins against us. He has forgiven them. He is a merciful king. But do you trust that? How many of you are, are maybe, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are in the situation where you're like, you're thinking to yourself, well, I blew it again this week. I've been struggling with this sin for a decade, and I thought I was over it, and I failed again this week. Have mercy, and come to him, and confess, and ask for forgiveness, and say, I blew it again, and what does Jesus say, 70 times 7? I forgive you. My grace is sufficient. It's enough. He's a merciful king. So where are you, church, in your understanding of your king? Do you see him as merciful? Do you just praise God 
that, that he has a heart for you? Aren't you thankful that God made this covenant with David? And if you're a believer today, you are royalty. You're from that line. You're the promised princes and princesses to come. You belong to the king of kings. David, a man, though after the heart of God, was also a murderer and a fornicator, but he repented and he believed in God's forgiveness. That is what it means to be a child of David. Does not come down to, your salvation does not depend on your greatness or the amount of faith or the extent of faith that you have, but on the extent of God's mercy. And I hope that you trust that. It's not your goodness. It's God's goodness. God made the covenant. God keeps the covenant. God promised the covenant. Christ fulfilled that covenant sufficiently and perfectly, and he is your rescuer. He is your savior. He's your prophet, priest, and he is your perfect king. And if you live under his rulership, you will experience that peace in this life. Not perfectly yet, but peace. And God came down to man. He doesn't make you jump through hoops to get up to him. He comes down and meets you in your filth. He meets you in your pride and in your arrogance and in your weakness and in your failings. And he says, you're forgiven. It's humbling. It's overwhelming. It's grace and it's mercy. And notice also in closing today that God built the temple. We are the beneficiaries of this promise. We, you and I, are the temple today, aren't we, that God built. You and I are the temple. Who indwells you? The Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Do you think of yourself that way? and look upward to Christ and understand that you are the temple. So there's several things and some application in closing today that that entails. First of all, do you see yourself as the temple of God? You and I, we are that temple that he has built. That's the point of this passage. Do you see yourself as the temple of God? Secondly, do you also see those sitting right next to you as temples? Do you treat each other as royalty? when they're annoying you or bothering you or failed you yet again? Do you see Christ in them? They're royalty. They're the temple of God. We ought to treat each other with that love and with that care. How much care went into Solomon's physical temple? How much money and time and work went into that temple? And yet what did God construct as that was symbolic of us today? That entails that you and I put a great deal of care and concern into each other. And my prayer is that as elders, as pastors, deacons, workers, ministry, workers, everyone that attends here, that we see each other as royalty, belonging to Christ, our King, and that we live underneath that. Christ accomplished this for us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these truths that you give us in your word. I pray that we will understand these things today, that we will take these things to heart, 
We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given to the world to be our King. Would you rule and reign in every heart that is here? And Father, if there's someone here today that does not know Christ, that is not a temple of the Holy Spirit, I pray that they will cry out to you, that you will bring life to them through your Spirit and through your Word, through the foolishness of preaching. Would they come to faith and believe this truth today that you love them, that you forgive them, that you will put their sins behind your back. They're as far as the east is from the west. They're behind the back of God and you would remember it no more. Father, I pray that you will continue to add more to our family in the days ahead through evangelism in this community. Would you uh, would we continue to see you constructing your temple until the day that we stand before the King of Kings? Help us to be busy about that work. Would we uh, treat one another with that love and with that, uh, that grace that you have shown to us? Would we care well for the temple here at Pine Grove? And would you bless the one true church of Christ around this world that you have promised and constructed and are continuing to build today through the gospel. We thank you for this promise that you made to David that we can uh, see fulfillment of today. And we long for that day, Father. We long for that day when, when we will be free from these uh, temporary tents. Where we will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and cast crowns at his feet, for he alone is worthy. Would he receive all the honor and all the glory, and we give praise and thanks to his name. In Jesus' name, amen.